Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by wine director and sommelier Lauren Gay of Sueño and Tender Mercy in Dayton, Ohio. If you're unfamiliar with either of those places, I recommend checking them out yourself. Uh, I haven't physically been to Tender Mercy yet, which is the bar underneath Sueño, but I've been to Sueño a few times. The food's amazing. We've had Chef Jorge Guzman on the podcast previously too as well. So if you didn't listen to that episode, make sure to check that out. He was recently named a finalist for a James Beard Award for his restaurant that he has up in Minneapolis. But Lauren has had an amazing career. I mean, she moved out west to L.A., you know, originally from Dayton, but moved out to L.A., worked at Nancy Silverton's restaurant, worked in Kenya for a while, too, as well. Uh, lived in an RV and documented that through like a travel vlog and blog that she had for a while. Now she's back in Dayton running the wine program. So we kind of talk about how she constructs, you know, the wine program for there and dealing with kind of the Mexican flavors, but also what she enjoys about wine, the exams that she's taken and where she kind of sees her career headed in in that vein too as well and what she's got coming up next too. So I first kind of learned about Lauren just through some of the Instagram posts that Swing You had had and found out that they had Smollier in the wine director spot. And actually, the last time we were in, I'm pretty sure she actually waited on me and my wife just because I think they were shorthanded, maybe a couple staff, and she was subbing in. We weren't entirely sure if it was her, and she wasn't entirely sure if it was us, and we were already like scheduled to record the podcast. You know, then once we, you know, did the podcast, we obviously put two and two together with each other. So, Awesome conversation, amazing sommelier. So again, I can't recommend those establishments enough if you get a chance to get out to Dayton. It's about an hour from Columbus, maybe like 45 minutes from Cincinnati, somewhere in that range too as well. So super close, amazing food. There's a parking lot right behind kind of the restaurant in between them and like an apartment complex. There's one just also adjacent behind them too as well. It costs like four bucks maybe to park there or something like that, five bucks, two bucks. Like it's super cheap too as well. There's a little pay station. Definitely get out there if you can. You can follow her on Instagram. It's at Lauren and it's like got anywhere from eight to 12 A's kind of in the middle of her name. And then also obviously the restaurant at Sueño DYT. And then you can also follow Tender Mercy on Instagram too. It's at Tender Mercy DYT. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on Twitter and Facebook, but primarily using the Instagram. Make sure to check out the website, spoonmob.com. We have all the profiles. All the links to all the episodes, different photos too as well for everybody that's been on the podcast. And then I usually kind of write up some wine and champagne stuff that I'm drinking. So if you need some recommendations there from somebody who's not an official sommelier, but just has a passion for good champagne and some wines too as well, go ahead and check that section of the website out if you want. Feel free to write into uh, the podcast too as well. You can either email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com or through the website, there's a contact portal too as well. Appreciate the people that have been writing in uh, with suggestions, questions, comments, feedback. That's been super awesome to see. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast. We're on all the major platforms. You can get to the platforms either through the website, through the link in our Instagram, but just search Spoon Mob on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, Amazon, Audible, anything that has podcasts, we're on there. I think the only one you won't be able to find us on is Pandora, just because they have a weird approval process and it's just not worth the time to continuously go through it with them. Without further delay, here's my conversation with the general manager, wine director in sommelier over at Sueño and Tender Mercy, Lauren Gay. Thanks again for agreeing uh, to do this and, and come on the podcast. Today is probably one of your off days, maybe. So always appreciative of people who are able to take some time out of one of their days off. I know you guys don't get too many in the industry, but definitely wanted to have you on. You know, been to Sueño a couple times. Had amazing experiences every time we've been there. 
you kind of do a little bit of both. You do Sueño, but you're also with Tender Mercy too as well, doing both sommelier work, but you're the wine director, a general manager, I think of Sueño too. So I want to get to kind of how you wound up there and everything, but definitely want to start all the way back at the beginning. How did you first kind of get into wine? I mean, were you always kind of working in restaurants through like high school and stuff like that? Or how did all that come together? Yeah. So first of all, again, thank you for having me on. It's it's an honor to be here. I am a fan of the podcast. So it's awesome that you have an interest in this at all. So my start definitely all the way back in high school, honestly, maybe even a little bit before that. It's been about 20 years working in hospitality. Uh, I think I got my first hospitality job kind of illegally. I think I was not <laughs> old enough to be employed working under the table. My aunt started a little cafe. And so I started taking tables there trying to save up money to buy a car. I think I was like 15 or something. So I had my temporary license. I felt like a, a, a big kid driving to an illegal job. And then it just kind of went from there. My family is extremely hardworking. And so as soon as I could get a job, I, I was always working. So I feel like I've pretty much worked in every position in a restaurant at this point. I've been a host. I've been a server. had to be a busser at some point. I will never work in a culinary uh, area because I will probably chop off a finger. But um, any any other, you know, bartending, some whole, whole nine yards. So worked in diners. I think I worked for several years at Bob Evans. That's where, you know, I uh, really <laughs> cut my teeth developing my server skills. And I did that in uh, through college as well. And then I uh, somehow convinced a manager to give me a job at a slightly more upscale uh, Italian restaurant in Columbus. I went to Ohio State. So I got a serving job there and he didn't want to give me the job because my only serving experience was Bob Evans and that wasn't fine dining. So took a chance, gave me the job. As soon as I turned 21, I started bartending and then the general manager there moved on. So then I was bartending and uh, general managing the restaurant before I even graduated college. So at Ohio State, I did study business marketing, business management, and uh, musicology. And so uh, it was a relevant experience even to the degree that I was pursuing. And then after I graduated, I had a slight existential crisis about what I was contributing to society and I joined the Peace Corps. And so I spent um, two years doing youth entrepreneurship development in uh, the rural outskirts of Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, that was a life-changing experience. I was highly secluded. I didn't have many other Peace Corps volunteers around me. And so uh, I had to you know, learn to be very self-sustainable, self-sustaining, I guess, at that point. So that was a wild experience. I came back from the Peace Corps. I moved back to Dayton at that point in time. I, so I actually, my Peace Corps experience got cut a little bit short. I got a very rare illness and I was recovering back in the United States. I didn't know what my next step was going to be. I thought I had at least six more months in the Peace Corps to kind of figure out my next step. I was thinking of taking the um, a service exam to kind of go into some kind of political realm. I was like, oh, I'm going to be an ambassador. Uh, and so um, studying for that entrance exam was completely derailed. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to figure out the rest of my life right now. So I was recovering, trying to figure out my next steps back in Dayton, started bartending again. I was young and had tons of energy. And I was managing a place, managing a restaurant in the morning. My shift started at 9 a.m. And then I was bartending at night and my shift started at 3 p.m. And we closed at 9. And then for a brief period of time, Dave Chappelle, who lives in Yellow Springs, was doing a pop-up, a PM pop-up late night bar. And so then I'd leave that second job and go to my third job, which started at 11 PM. And then, you know, I'd get off at like 3 AM and do it all over again. And I think back about that and I was like, oh my God, I'm 
how did I ever have that much energy? (laughs) Yes, I was running myself ragged, trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. And I met somebody and we fell in love and we moved to Los Angeles together. And he also uh, is in the beverage industry. He is a bartender, beverage director, knows tons about spirits and cocktails and beer. So we went out to LA together. I mentioned that I studied marketing and music in college. I have a passion for music and I thought I wanted to have a career in the music industry. And so moving to LA made sense. I got a, an internship out there working for a small record label that turned out to be uh, not what I thought it was. And so Los Angeles being a little bit more expensive than Dayton, Ohio, I immediately had to get a job and I was crashing with a friend in Hollywood and I found a job opening and it was two blocks away from where I was living. It was a host position. I was like, okay, whatever. I'll just get this for the time being and applied, got it. And that was like five days after moving to LA. And I just, I literally fell ass backwards into like the coolest opportunity in Los Angeles because Keith Spaka is owned by Nancy Silverton and Joe Bastianich and just like wonderful renowned chefs. And Nancy is kind of my all-time idol at this point. She's kind and she is so talented and she was there in um, the Austria Mota Kisbaka all the time. So being able to work for her and learn from her was truly an amazing experience. So I started as a host quickly. They offered me a management position and then I saw how much servers made and I was like, nah, I'm good. I just want to be a server. <laughs> so I became a server and um, that's really when my wine career took off because I moved to LA thinking I wanted to pursue something in music and it just wasn't happening. Yet I was surrounded by all of these really talented people that had a passion for something that I also had spent a lot of time in my life already working with. And so, you know, there were a few people working in the Mozaplex. That's kind of the the corner. It's the Osteria Moza, Pizzeria Moza, Kisbaka. And so, yeah, there were a few people working in the Mozaplex that saw that I had an interest in wine and really pushed me uh, forward and kind of took me under their wing. And so that's when it all started. I got my level one uh, certification through the CMS at that point in time. And my boyfriend at the time was working at a really uh, amazing cocktail bar in Culver City for working with a really renowned bartender, Beau de Bois. And so he was really learning and we were making money and we're saving and we were saving up to go on a vacation and we couldn't decide where we wanted to go. And months and months and months passed you know, we had this little fun going for a vacation. We looked at that money and we're like, shit, like this is not just vacation money. This is like, we could do something seriously epic with this money. And so we sold all of our belongings. We bought an RV and we started a booze blog uh, called Rotten Journal. So for the next year and a half after that, we lived out of an RV like a bunch of bums. And we traveled the United States in search of all things alcohol. Rotten Journal, the name came from the fact that all kinds of fermentation have to, and everything alcoholic initially starts with fermentation. So essentially rotting. Also, it's a cool name. You know, we, we studied rice wine in the Carolinas from the Gullah people. We did interviews with different brewers or distillers. We got to talk with a distiller who is working with a professor to revitalize some indigenous crops that uh, have kind of fallen out of fashion or gone by the wayside. And so they're scouring the world for these seeds and then growing like Jimmy red corn and distilling it into a bourbon. And we also spent a lot of time in the Southwest and got to visit some wineries in New Mexico who knew New Mexico is making killer wine. And yeah, so I ended up staying in Vegas for a while, worked uh, on the strip in Vegas uh, doing serving and wine stuff. And then 
we got a kind of lucky break. We had started a website and an Instagram and a media company called Tastemade found us and said, hey, do you guys do video? And we said, uh, of course we said, yes, we lied. <laughs> we had a camera at that point. We're like, we can figure this out. Google, how make video? Um, so just really started super rudimentary. We're like, okay, I guess we have to purchase the Adobe suite. I guess we should probably upgrade our camera. So just really like novice rookie level um, started making videos. This is when Tastemade was already a pretty established media company at that point, but Tastemade Travel was a new subsidiary that they had just created. And so we were one of the initial uh, videographer teams that they brought on um, kind of as like a contract worker. We weren't necessarily employed for them, but we got paid per video. So sometimes we'd be in a location and they and we would make pitches to them. Even in Dayton, Ohio, we came back to visit family at one point in time. And there's a brewery at a, uh, a museum, Carillon Historic Park, and they do brewing based on recipes from the 1800s with all local ingredients. And they dress in the old timey clothes and they, you know, everything's done over a fire and it's really cool. So, you know, we were in Dayton and we pitched to this made, Hey, would you want a video on this? And so we did, sometimes they'd send us places. And so we were sent to Hawaii on this huge, like media travel blogger influencer tour where I felt totally out of place. They sent us to, to Cabo to do some work with the uh, travel and tours on board there and some really luxury hotels that I could never afford to stay in otherwise. And um, spent a lot of time in Mexico. And we actually were spending several months in Mexico doing uh, food and alcohol and travel videos when we met the Idea Collective back in Ohio. Uh, we came home just for uh, a visit and met Chris and David and Ginger. The Idea Collective started as a hospitality consulting firm and they were wanting to throw down some roots in Dayton and start their own actual concept. So we had a friend that connected us. Obviously, we had a, an intense interest in Mexico. We had been spending several months there. And the first concept that the Idea Collective wanted to start was a Mexican restaurant, Swingham. So we got hooked up with them, saw their passion for Dayton, which was our hometown, but not their hometown. But they were just like head over heels in love with Dayton, saw so much potential there, really wanted to elevate the the food and entertainment scene. And we just wanted to ride along their coattails to help our hometown become the gem that we know it is. So ended up moving back to Dayton to be a part of that. There were a few issues with uh, securing the location. And so the, the whole project got a little bit delayed. So I found a, a job managing a, a local slightly upscale restaurant, which was a, a huge, great experience for me because I hadn't I had had assistant management experience, but that really threw me into the deep end, managing the wine list and being the general manager for that place. It was kind of like my my warm up for Swain and Tinder Mercy. So I did that for about a year and a half. And then at the last minute, they decided to open Tender Mercy first before Swain So Tender Mercy is an underground cocktail lounge. There's a wine element. There's also some beer, but it's just wacky cocktails, really innovative, cool stuff. So Tender Mercy opened. We had the wildest first two weeks of, of soft opening. At one point in time, Chris and I looked at each other and we were like, did we just open a club? This isn't even a bar. This is a club. People are raging. It was like, you couldn't even move. I was trying to carry drinks and I'm holding it above my head because it was so packed. And then three days later, uh, DeWine declared the shutdown for the entire state of Ohio due to the pandemic. I honestly, it was such a wild ride getting that open that I was kind of out of the loop with everything that was happening. I knew COVID was a thing. I knew that there were cases in, all, in the United States and it was serious, but when it happened, I was, it just was a smack in the face. I, I honestly was so wrapped up in my own little world that I didn't see it coming. So the next six months or whatever, we 
we were shut down. We had to lay off all the employees except for the salaried employees. And we were literally selling like toilet paper and dried beans and rice out of the back of Tender Mercy just to try and stay afloat. <laughs> you know, we had just dropped all this money into this, this new, pretty ambitious endeavor. And so, yeah, that was tough. Uh, eventually, I didn't see the need to have three salaried people at Tender Mercy considering the pandemic. Swainio was put on pause indefinitely just due to so many things, the pandemic being one of them. Additionally, you know, sourcing things during the pandemic, like we couldn't get lumber to continue building. One of the owners drove down to Tennessee to pick up lumber and put it in the back of his car because they needed a particular thing for Sueno. So uh, it was just a very crazy time. So I had always wanted to do a seller internship and I spent that, that harvest in Napa and Carneros doing a seller internship for Etude Wines. So I got to see winemaking firsthand. It was such a profound experience for me. It was amazing getting to work next to a winemaker and work with other passionate people about wines. And so many things just clicked for me at that moment where, you know, I loved wines. I was passionate about wines. I read about it. I drank it, but I never made it. And so things that I had seen in theory or read about or seen diagrams of, I was actually doing with my own hands. So that was a profound experience for me. Uh, after that, still just kind of kicking it, waiting for... So I knew to get going and I worked in wine retail for a little bit in the Bay Area. I almost got a, a different restaurant management job and the, you know, they had shut down the hospitality industry again. So I was like, okay, I'll just do wine retail. And then I did that until Swainio got kicking in April of last year, came back and hit the ground running, haven't stopped since. You just unpacked so much. So I got some questions about different parts. So we're going to go all the way back again, but this is going to be cool because this is a little bit different kind of structure of an episode that we normally do. Rewind all the way back to your days at Bob Evans. <laughs> Rewind all the way back there. When you're at Bob Evans, breakfast is what they're known for and all that stuff. You know, the weekends, especially, you know, you get the after church crowd, kind of all that stuff. When you're working in that environment, you know, you're going to make, you know, a decent amount of money, but is it still just like you wake up some days and you're like, ah, uh, I got a Sunday morning shift. This is going to suck. What is that mentality? For sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I was always very excited because I did want to make money. But the one that I worked at, the first one that I worked at, I was the youngest person too. It was a lot of lifetime middle-aged women who were supporting their families. And I, there were times when somebody would take my table and she would say, you don't have kids to feed. What do you say to that? I'm like a 16 year old kid. Am I going to go up to this 50 something year old woman and say, that's not fair. So yeah, there, it was kind of cutthroat, honestly. And there were times when I did not want to go for a multitude of reasons, because it was chaos on Sunday mornings. Yes, you're correct. Because it was right off the highway. And sometimes a tour, like a Greyhound bus would pull off 10 minutes before we close. And I'm the only server left. And now there's 40. I still have nightmares about that. It was back in a, a time when I feel like they're in, in the industry too, there tends to be some like sexual aggression type of things. Like there was always tension between the, the male cooks and the female servers. And there were always joke, inappropriate jokes that were made. And, and I think about some of the things that were said, like it sticks with me to this day, some of the things that were said when I was a 16 year old kid. And so, you know, I, I was always a very introverted person. And I feel like I became a server to try and push myself outside of those feelings of, of inferiority and just trying to put myself out there and become more outgoing. And it definitely helped, but it was kind of a deep dive into that situation where you have to talk to guests that you've never met before, where you have, you know, this plethora of intense personalities in the back of the house and amongst other servers, for sure. 
and also I'm not a morning person. And so every time I had to work a morning shift and I had to be there at 6 a.m., I was like, oh my God, fuck this. This is so terrible. <laughs> and you always smell like syrup. I always smelled like bacon and syrup and you just cannot wash that out of your clothes. It just permeates your clothes, your car, everything. Yeah, you have to have a set, like special set of clothes for for work in, in a, those type of environments for sure. So you're from Dayton, you know, originally. Why did you decide to go to Ohio State instead of Cincinnati's? pretty close right there. You know, you go to Indianapolis, Chicago's got universities, the entire Midwest, you went to Ohio State. What was your intended career path, you know, at that time that you were thinking? So when I did apply to Ohio State, I didn't apply to many places. And I think when I think back about being a senior in high school, I knew I had to take the ACT and the SAT. I bought a prep course. And then I knew I would go to college, but I didn't realize that the world was my oyster, I guess. I just, I felt like, oh, you pick a nice state college because it's affordable. And then this one's close. I don't have to pick up and move my entire life. This is good enough. I loved my experience at Ohio State and I honestly wouldn't change it for the world, but I seriously didn't consider many other, I think Ohio State's literally the only college I applied for. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I was a valedictorian. Like I had above a 4.0 GPA. I probably could have gone with scholarships to maybe not like Ivy League, but I could have gone somewhere else. And I just, it didn't feel like an option for me. I, I am close to my family. So being relatively close to home was nice for me. I always thought like, oh, this is far enough away where nobody's just going to drop in, but it's close enough where I could come home for the holidays if I wanted to. And I did get scholarships at Ohio State and the application process for college is kind of expensive. And so I didn't want to break the bank by just applying to all of these dream schools too. But like I said, I didn't have dream schools. I just knew I wanted to go to college. I didn't ever really fantasize about which one and what difference that would make in my life. What was the worst thing you encountered when you were in an RA there? So much puke. Um, (laughs) Actually, this is better. So my first year... Okay, so I was a resident advisor in these dorms that were um, attached to dorms for the athletes, the student athletes. So the basketball players and the football players stayed there. And the worst thing was whenever I was working the front desk And it was a weekend and some girl would come in and sign in for one of the athletes and I'd buzz her up and she'd leave an hour later, 30 minutes later, another girl comes up, she signs in for the same guy, she goes up. Uh, So yeah, that was, that was pretty gnarly. (laughs) It's funny because like in that situation, like knowing what, like, you know, now as an adult, looking back on that, you know, one of the athletes should have been like super nice to me just to like smooth everything over. So there's no like, you know, red flags, like making your life difficult or anything. Cause it's like, you have all these checklists of like all these people that are signing in. And it's like, I kind of know what's going on here, guys. You know what I mean? I have so much blackmail potential. You better be kissing ass. Like <laughs> being an RA, like, is that something that like when you move in and it's like, Hey, we need RAs, like you could just sign up or like, how does somebody even become like an RA? I've never understood that. I know exactly what they do and everything like that, but it's like, do you have to seek that out or are they just like pulling names out of a hat? So it's pretty fierce competition and you actually have to go through a course. And at the end they evaluate you and whether they think you're a good fit. I grew up in a very modest home. And so I wanted to be an RA first and foremost, because it means that I got my room and board paid for. And then I got paid on top of that. So room and board is expensive, even at a a public school. So that was a huge chunk of change that was immediately knocked off of my loans, either for myself or for my family. So that's, I hate to say that, but that was really, it was financially motivated at first. And then, so yeah, you you go through this course. Uh, It was an entire quarter long. That was back when Ohio State was quarters, not semesters. And they teach you about what it means to be an RA and essentially are just assessing, are you a mature rational adult that can make good decisions. And so somehow I I got through there and I got an offer and 
So the stadium scholarship program was where I lived my freshman year. And that is for uh, students that have academic accomplishment, but demonstrate financial need. And it's the cheapest place that you can live on campus because essentially all of the students run the entire program. So they don't have janitors. They don't have people working in the cafeteria. They don't have people working at the front desk. The students do all of that. And so I was a janitor. I pulled so much hair out of drains and scrubbed so many toilets. And so when I did become an RA, I put in a request to be an RA for the stadium scholarship program. So then my sophomore and junior year, I still was associated and connected with that program, which I love. I, it was a pretty small close-knit community. I met some of my best friends one of which is a dentist in Chicago and he and his girlfriend are coming up this weekend to stay with me. So I made some really good lifelong friends throughout uh, my RA, my RA career and my time in the stadium scholarship program. I mean, you did some interns too, as well. You did some stuff with marketing too. Did you kind of have like an idea of what you wanted to do post-college or not really, you know, you're doing that stuff, but then you wind up managing, you know, that restaurant Moretti's I'm in upper Arlington there, but did you have like any path that you were like, you know, it's like to be in, you know, marketing or, you know, whatever. Right. I still don't know what I want to do. I don't know what my path is. <laughs> I certainly didn't back then. I was undeclared. Um, I think, what did they call it? They called it exploration, uh, which I was like, oh, can this just be my major forever exploration? Am I going to be like cave diving and reading treasure maps? That sounds amazing. So I was an exploration major my, my first uh, year in college. I thought about a lot of things. I wanted to be a veterinarian all through my childhood because I love animals so much. And then I heard it was really hard. And so I reconsidered and then I considered something on the medical field. I was really good at math. So my mom wanted me to be an engineer. And I kind of, you know, I mentioned that my, one of my big passions is music. And so I kind of settled on, well, you know, I'm not musically inclined, but music makes me so happy. And maybe I'll work for a record label or I considered opening my own concert venue, something like that. So entered into Fisher College of Business and I consulted with a few professors on how I can kind of formulate my own program that has a music specialty. And there was a professor in the School of Music that was trying to work with the Fisher College of Business to create something. I don't think it's even to this day, it's been created, but the best I could formulate was uh, business management with a musicology minor. So that's what I did. I, I figured that was something that I wanted to do. And if it didn't work out, a business degree is pretty catch-all. And so I thought I'd just be fine no matter what. Yeah, I, th I think there's this, in my generation, there's a different perception of what it means to have a career. It's not my parents' generation where you go to school, you get a degree, and then you work in that industry for 40 years. It's it's a little bit more fluid than that. When you're over at Moretti's, you know, you eventually become the manager there. What was kind of the biggest challenge of being a restaurant manager for the first time? Oh, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> that was the biggest challenge. <laughs> now, I, I think the biggest challenge for me was probably HR related because I was so young. I was 21 and there were a few employees that were older than me and had more experience in the industry than me. And everybody treated me extremely well. But, you know, I, I was really just getting my my feet wet in, in that kind of respect and I knew nothing about wine and it did have a wine focus, even though I was bartending and managing, it was an Italian restaurant and there was, you know, a decent wine list. And so I was hosting wine tastings and, and really learning about wine and having to, you know, fake it till I make it and, and kind of do my own research just to be adequate at my job. So I have very good memories working there. It was, it was a lot of fun and the owner was very present. He was there during the day, every day making pasta by hand and, and really, had a lot of confidence and faith in me, 
but also gave me a lot of guidance too. So I was, I was really fortunate that I wasn't just thrown in the deep end. It was a challenge, but I never felt alone. So is that probably where like your initial interest in wine kind of started? Do you think? 1000% yes. So then you wind up getting in the Peace Corps, going to Kenya. What all were you doing over in Kenya? Was it, you know, education related or what all is the Peace Corps? And I think like when people hear the Peace Corps, they think like ministry in a way where it's not necessarily that like it is, you know, other stuff attached to it. So like, what were you doing when you were over there? Yeah, there is that perception where it's pretty much just like a a mission trip or something. And it's definitely not religiously affiliated. It's actually through the U.S. government. It was started by Kennedy in the 60s as a, (laughs) depending on who you ask, it's it's a way of outreach and maybe it's soft cultural imperialism. Maybe it's an actual, um, good-hearted way to kind of help other nations. I thought it was great because I didn't have any experience. I had just graduated and this was a great way for me to get some real world experience in in business and do it in an interesting place and also do it in a way where I'm giving back. I remember this crisis when I was in my last quarter of college and we were I was in a business class and we were talking about um, businesses going green and having environmentally friendly practices or stances. And I remember the professor saying, when should a company go green? Well, can you market it? Will it add to your bottom line? And it was nothing, there was nothing about like, because it's our obligation as humans to not fuck the earth up. And I was just like, oh my God, is this, is this the industry I'm going into? Are these the kind of people and the mentalities I'm going to surround myself with if I go into business? And so I was like, how can I, how can I take this degree and do something good with it? And so yeah, that's how I got into the Peace Corps. And like I said, it's it's a governmental agency. They have all kinds of different divisions. You can do education, you can do business development, you can do medical. It just depends and what sector you're placed in depends on your life experience or your degree. So since I had a, a business degree, I was put into economic development. I worked with a, an NGO, a non-governmental organization called Junior Achievement. And they're actually based in the United States, but they're worldwide. And they create programs for kids, whether like all age groups, pretty much K through 12, where it's hands-on business experience. So I went to uh, the Eastern region of Kenya. The closest big city to me was Machakos. And this area had not, junior achievement had not been started at all. It was definitely in Nairobi. It was in Mombasa. It was in some of the bigger cities, but this was definitely a more rural area. And so I was tasked with finding schools that are willing to take this program on. And then I would provide them with uh, materials and I would train a teacher in the school to be the patron for the club. While I was there, I went from zero to like 40 schools uh, that took on the program. And it was hard work. It was, I, I lost weight, not because I wasn't eating. It was just, I was, I was pounding the pavement. I had no idea where all of these schools were. So I was fortunate enough to hook up with one of the teachers at the school that I lived at and her son was a, a peaky peaky driver, um, a motorbike driver. And so he knew the area really well. And he would, he was just so friendly and outgoing and gregarious. And so he would take me to all of these schools and introduce me to people. And, and I would train the teachers. And essentially, they started a club where throughout the course of a uh, school year, they would do every element of starting a business, come up with an idea, come up with a product or a service, sell shares in the company to their parents, other kids, whatever. They'd start the business, they'd create the product or service, they'd sell it, they'd return, they'd dissolve the company, return shares to the investors, and then keep the profit. And the culmination of this was this huge competition, like a, a national competition where they could show their their project and then winners go on to an international competition. 
So then you do that like for about like two years or so. You wind up coming back. Then you wind up, like you said, out California, Hollywood area. You're at Shispaka. That's kind of where your next step in the wine industry is. You know, you're you're in the restaurant, Nancy Silverton, all that stuff. What do you miss most about California living? So much. Honestly, every time I go back to California, it tugs at my heartstrings a little bit. The weather, obviously, it's beautiful. The accessibility to so much good food and beverage and entertainment and museums. There's just so many people too from all walks of life. I made some really great friends there. For some reason, a lot of Canadians made friends with a lot of Canadians there too. So it's just, it's also just beautiful. I remember getting off work early once and I was like, I'm just going to go for a, a drive. I had a really cool car too. And so I was just like cruising and I went through Laurel Canyon and, you know, just all of these really epic places that you could just stumble upon. And it was, it's just a very beautiful place. I think people love to hate on LA. They complain that it's too expensive, but I tell you what, I could, my food budget was far less just because I could hit up taco trucks, <laughs> you know, get, you could eat an entire meal at a taco truck for like four bucks um, and have the most incredible meal of your life. So yeah, it's, I, I miss how beautiful it was. I definitely miss the food and I miss the people. I, I did not find Los Angeles to be full of the fake phony people that you hear about. And I think part of that has to do with the industry that you work in and where you live, but also where you insert yourself. I met some extremely genuine, so talented people that are are not the, you know, the kind of cliche fake people that you might expect. When you're at Shispaka, like that's kind of when you take the intro sommelier exam, right? Correct. Yes. Up to that point, was that always something you thought about doing or was it once you kind of got there, they're like, hey, you know, there is this exam over here. If you're interested, you know, we recommend you kind of, you know, do this and everything. And so like kind of what led to you deciding to finally take the exam? I was not aware of the exam and how to become certified and all of that stuff before that job. I think that I'm just, I'm very inquisitive and I'm very curious and I don't like being bad at something. And so when I started serving there, they don't have um, a liquor license. It's just wine. Um, and they had, when I was working there, they literally had two beers <laughs> just for, you know, to make the guy that refuses to drink wine happy. And so it was a very, a very wine heavy list. And I did not know, I can't, I, I just didn't like not being able to talk about the product I'm selling. Um, so I, I dove deep just to be good at my job and then found that I really was interested in it. Wine is just this really interesting combination of so many different things. It's it's agriculture, it's politics, it's geography, it's cultural, it's it's just so many different things. And the nerd in me really geeked out about that. And I just bugged people. I would just ask questions. The song that was there, I would just and during downtime, like, why is this bottle shaped like this? How do you say this? What do you mean when you say it tastes like this? And so she was the most patient person and and saw that I had this interest and would answer my questions and would come to me and say, hey, I was thinking about blah, blah, blah. Did you know X, Y, Z? And there was another son there too that saw that I was interested. And she came to my house and did my first blind tasting with me. And I, it was terrible. I think I called a German Riesling as a California Chardonnay. So it was like as wrong as you could be, but I didn't know what I was doing. And it was obvious I didn't know what, she, what I was doing. And she was kind enough to take her time uh, and, and help me and encourage me and not make me feel dumb. It was a great environment to come up in. What was the most difficult part of the exam? I think the most difficult part of the exam, the intro level was just, there's kind of this hurdle that you have to get over where there's a moment where things start clicking and things start making sense. 
And until you get to that point, it just, it's literally all, all French to me. And I didn't take French in high school. I took Spanish, damn it. So, you know, there's just so many different things that are, or way, ways of looking at things that are kind of different than what you are used to in, in school. So the AOC laws didn't make sense to me. I was constantly getting frustrated with how not, not only each country has different laws, but each like regions within a country have different laws and everything's in a foreign language. And how is it all going to make sense? And I think to kind of piggyback off of that, one of the more difficult parts of the first test was just, I'm, I'm a very type A person and I take a class. I have an agenda. I have assigned readings. I have practice exams. I know when I'm going to take a test. I can go to office hours. I have people that I can talk to. And the court is just kind of like, go get them, champ. There's not a lot of handholding or structure, which that was super frustrating for me. And I think that I had a lot of kind of resentment about that at the beginning. And I was like, I'm going to write it a book on how to pass the SOM exam for, for all those people that learn like me. And now I appreciate that because it's a little bit more real world. I think that and a fault of American styles of education system is that you, you learn to pass the test rather than learning to actually learn. And so if you're told everything you're expected to learn and you learn just that, then there's pockets of things that you're going to be missing out on. And I'll be honest, I took the certified and I didn't pass the certified the first time. I, I passed the theory and I passed the... Um, uh, service, but I, I failed the blind tasting. When I think back about it now, I'm glad that I failed because I didn't put enough time into actually tasting. It's something that actually has to come with experience. You can't cram for the tasting. So I guess I guess that was the challenge. This is a very long-winded answer. I think that was the challenge for me with the court. It's just, it's not my style of learning, but I understand why they do that. And I think I'm at a place where I really appreciate that about, about the structure. Do you ever test with WSET? Did you ever do anything with them too? Yeah, so I did WSET two. I did it last year. I skipped over one since I had already I'd already gone through the court. But that is something that's nice about WSET. It's way more structured. They give you uh, workbooks and pra- practice exams. And I actually went through. I just wanted to do it right. So, like I said, I love classrooms. I went through the Napa Valley Wine Academy, and they um, are certified. I, I don't know how it all works, but they're certified to to teach and administer the WSET exam. So like location vendor. Yeah. We have one here in Columbus. So, uh, you know, they sent the workbooks. We had once a week zoom meetings, they sent, um, little bottles of wine for blind tasting. So that that's definitely the way that I learned best. And so it was kind of an interesting dichotomy between, um, WSET and CMS in terms of how they approach taking those tests. And so I def- I wanted to do WSET just to see the difference, the way they, teach and talk about wine is very different as well. Do you think you'll do any more with WSET, like three or four or? I think I definitely want to do three. I know that the way the levels of difficulty between WSET and CMS go, it's kind of alternating. So if I wanted to go for advanced and the court, it would make more sense to take that intermediary step of level three. And I also think level four is still supposed to be a little bit less difficult than advanced. I'm not 100% sure. But it's a nice, a nice way to continue that, that learning so that you don't forget things. It's a nice way to stay on top of things without taking a huge leap. You can kind of just take those baby steps if you bounce back and forth. So, and I also think it is important to see how other people talk about wine in the wine industry. Like I said, uh, the CMS is very, it's a lot more service-based. And it, to me, it's a lot more, I don't know, like ethereal in the way they talk about wine. Whereas WSET, it's a lot more quantitative. Like the way they assess a wine, it's like, does it satisfy X, Y, and Z? And is it a good wine? How many different 
words did you use to describe it? If you used a lot of different words to describe it, it's more complex. If it's more complex, it's better. Whereas I think the CMS, it's it's like you can't always quantify some of those things about a wine, or at least they don't attempt to the way that W said does. So it's it's nice to see how the you know the various degrees of of diversity within the wine world. So with RV living at this point, when you guys are living in an RV, I tried to get my wife to do this, but uh, she wouldn't do it. She said, like, at best, we could test it out on, like, a road trip or something. There's part of me that just wants to explore and, like, see all the stuff that, like, you might not see. What was kind of the biggest challenge for you guys? I mean, obviously, you, you wind up, you know, kind of doing the, the videography stuff comes along the way for you. And you guys are doing your own thing. But in terms of just living day to day in an RV, kind of what's the... The thing that maybe people don't think about the most, but it, it is a really big like mental thing you have to get over. Internet. <laughs> Trying to run a blog and post on Instagram or Facebook and post things to YouTube and doing so while living in an RV where nine times out of 10, you have zero internet was extremely difficult. So uh, my partner at the time had a phone plan on T-Mobile. I had one on Verizon and then we bought an AT&T hotspot. So wherever we went, we tried, we were like, okay, well, Verizon doesn't have good coverage right now. Let's, let's try the AT&T hotspot. So, you know, that was, that was definitely a challenge just in terms of what we were trying to accomplish on the road. It's, there's just a lot of time that has to be dedicated to, to that style of living too. You spend a lot of time on the road. You spend a lot of time finding a place where you can stay. You spend a lot of time finding water, uh, finding hookups, charging your batteries, there's just a lot of time dedicated to the actual lifestyle itself. I mean, it was amazing and I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. We got to see so many cool places. But yeah, it was it could it could be a challenge sometimes. And I, I will say I'm I'm pretty impressed that my boyfriend and I were living in a twenty-two foot trailer and it felt bigger. It felt big. And we were never like on top of one another or sick of each other. It was that was kind of a cool thing. Yeah, it was it was really awesome. I don't know if I could do it now. Younger Lauren was was gung-ho and, and all about it. <laughs> so when you wind up working, you guys are doing the, the video stuff, but at one point you wind up working like at a record label, like you mentioned, were you still half in, half out on the wine industry or were you looking to like kind of grab as many skills anywhere that you could to hopefully compile it all into one thing? When we hit the road, we were still definitely in F&B. Like we were it had more of a travel slant at that point in time, but we were doing mostly food and beverage videos. So I think that the background and the knowledge that both of us had acquired up until that point was super helpful. You know, it, it allowed us to be able to do an interview with a distiller and, and know what they're talking about and ask intelligent questions. It allowed us to go to restaurant Quintanil in Mexico City and do their like 13 course tasting menu and do a, a video about the ant larva and know what we're eating and drinking while we're profiling this restaurant. So. I feel like it was still on the path, on the related path, just a little bit askew of what most, nor not most normal people, but what most people normally take down that path. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think that I was very much living in the moment, like, this is awesome. I, not many people get this opportunity. I'm going to ride this out as long as I can. I'm glad that I got out of it when I did, because that's not a very pandemic sustainable career. Um, a travel blogger during the pandemic doesn't seem like you're going to be banking it very well. So um, I'm glad that the opportunity with Idea Collective and working with Swainio and Tinder Mercy happened when it did. And like I said, their, their passion for Dayton is something that attracted me. And also I was, I was ready to kind of sit still for a little while. And I felt like I had the, the skills and the background and the passion to, to take on what they were presenting to us. 
once you get to tender mercy, like it kind of opens for three days and coronavirus happens, but you guys kind of pivoted. I mean, you were doing kind of the mercy Mart thing, just selling random goods and stuff like that. But you also started filming stuff again for YouTube, Laurentine live. Do you still do those? Like how did all that kind of come together? That came together because we were spending a lot of time in a dark basement with nothing to do and waiting for people to come pick up their to-go cocktails or toilet paper or whatever it may be. I don't remember how the idea came about. I'm pretty sure Brandon came up with the idea for Laurentine. It was Lauren during the quarantine. Laurentine. Um, so it was pretty much, you know, just tips and tricks and about how to drink wine better since everybody was drinking a lot during the pandemic anyways. <laughs> uh, it was also a way to kind of bolster up our sales for to-go wine, but they were fun. They were fun to make. Uh, I enjoy making videos. I enjoy filming and I don't enjoy editing. And Brandon is very good at editing. And so he did a majority of the editing, which made it even more fun for me. But yeah, you know, we did one about like decanting. Why decant wine? We did one on sabering champagne, which was my favorite one to do. We actually have one of the owners of Swaino Tender Mercy has a legit uh, champagne saber. So that was fun. And then we would talk about some of the wines that we were selling that were on our list. I mean, we, we opened and we were packing the house with like 400 people a night. And so we had so much inventory on hand. At Tender Mercy, our cocktails are pre-batched and put on draft. So we had, I don't know, 10 kegs worth of cocktails that had things like citrus juice. So it's not going to stay good forever. So yeah, we were like, we got to move this product. We got to get it out. Um, so there was a lot of different inspirations, but it was, it was a lot of fun to get back into that videography element. It's a nice creative release. <laughs> Are you going to still keep it kind of going periodically? It's very time consuming. It's it's crazy. So we would do these videos for Tastemade that would end up being 45 to 60 seconds. There was one that we did in Mexico City for um, this apartment building that was shaped like a snake. And we got there in the afternoon. I think we ended up shooting for maybe seven hours and then spent 15 hours editing the video and it ended up being like a 60 second video. So the amount of time that goes into planning and commuting to and shooting and editing a video is just astronomical. And sometimes I watch a feature length film and I'm like, how do these people do this? We might periodically make videos. Brandon is still very good at that and, and will occasionally make videos for Tender Mercy. We also do work with a very extremely talented local photographer, videographer named John Morton. So he's worked on a, a few different series of videos for us. He did one on Milk Punch for Tender Mercy. He has done a few with Chef Jorge Guzman and also with Brandon. And so he's kind of amazing and he loves what we're doing. And um, it's nice to work with somebody that's on that creative side that's passionate about what we're doing as well. So we do have different videos coming through with him. And then periodically, Brandon will get a wild hair and, and help us with a video. When you're out in Napa doing some winemaking, what did you find was the most important part of the process? The most important part of the winemaking process is having good grapes, growing in the proper soil, having the right conditions, the right weather conditions to have grapes that are worth fermenting. I was there during the wildfires and there were so many grapes that were smoke tainted and you can't, you can't do anything with that. Etude also makes a bottling from Oregon and the wildfires were so bad that year in Oregon too, that they didn't do any bottling from, from Oregon that year. So they, they were experimenting with doing more organic growth as well, which is a kind of a weird transition to get into. And but yeah, it's, I think the production was pretty, pretty low that year across the board in Napa. It was also kind of crazy too, because Etude is owned by Treasury. So they have 
other producers in their portfolio, essentially. So um, once further north that were more affected by the wildfires. So they were scrambling to harvest these grapes before they got smoke taint. And then the cellars were being closed off because it was dangerous. And so they were sending all of these grapes meant to be bottled into a different producer to our cellar. We were processing grapes for about seven different producers in the Etude cellar at one time. So yeah, just to, to get back to your question, what's the most important part of the process? If you don't start with good grapes, it's going to be shit wine no matter what. You, can, you can't add enough acid or tannin or whatever kind of additives to make it good. It has to start with a good product. You're at Tender Mercy. Was Swainu just a natural progression for you being there? They kind of had both concepts at the same time, like you mentioned, but Swainu got heavily delayed because of construction and everything, and they wound up opening Tender Mercy first. But was it kind of always going to be like, hey, we want you to essentially be the wine director at both like and all that stuff? Or was it just, you know, you wound up at Tender Mercy and then it was like, hey, this other thing's finally coming online. Do you want to do that too? So it was always meant to be both. And in fact, I think my role was more important in Swainu since Tender Mercy is a cocktail lounge that just happens to have a, if I do say so myself, amazing wine list. It, it made more sense in a restaurant where, you know, food and wine are a natural pairing. My talents were definitely more essential for Swainu than Tender Mercy. And I think that's the, the main reason why I was able, when Sueño got put on hold during the pandemic, I was able to get away and do a seller internship because probably less than 10% of our sales at Tender Mercy have to do with wine. It's so cocktail heavy. So I felt a little useless until Sueño came back online and I was able to kind of go check that bucket list item off of my checklist and then come back once Sueño came back online. So when you're building out a wine list, what's your methodology? What are you looking to organize and, and create? What's your style? I guess the first most important thing... Well, let me say this. It's entirely different for Tender Mercy than it is Sueño. Sueño has a food menu and that's the most important thing. The food is the most important thing and the wine list is there to enhance and accommodate the, the food menu. Tender Mercy is a little bit different. It's a cocktail lounge. We don't do food. It needs to be wine that can stand alone and doesn't need food. I love Italian wines. So many Italian wines should not be consumed without food or they, they can feel a little aggressive if it's not paired with food. So that's my number one. The, the starting place is you know what is meant to accompany. From there, I really put an emphasis on wines that are organic or biodynamic. I think that especially having spent time in California and talking to grape growers and talking to winemakers, it's preserving our environment is so important right now more than ever. We're certainly in an environmental crisis and I've never talk to a winemaker or a grape grower that doesn't believe in climate change because they see it. Talk to grape growers in Germany that have for hundreds of years not been able to grow any, you know, certain types of grapes because it needs a warmer climate. And now they're like, oh my God, we can grow these red grapes. It's crazy. So I think preserving the environment is a super important thing. Um, so I do give a focused or a, a preferential treatment to organic biodynamic. And I do personally love natural wines. And then I also put a lot of emphasis on or preferential treatment towards female winemakers or owners. I don't remember all of the statistics, but I believe a majority of UC Davis analogy graduates are female. Yet in California, less than, I believe it's less than 10% of the winemakers are female. So there's a huge disparity between the education component and then who's holding these positions of power in terms of, of gender. And so I think that, um, you know, getting that kind of recognition, representation is just important. And so I like giving a space for female winemakers and owners as well. So yeah, that's kind of my approach. I will also say this is going to make me sound shallow, but I want a good label. 
if your label art is trash, like it makes it really hard for me to put that wine <laughs> on the list. And I know never judge a book by its cover, never judge a wine by its label. But at the end of the day, people eat first with their eyes. And I think that if you're, you've been to Tender Mercy as well, I believe. We haven't been to Tender Mercy yet. Every time we wind up going to Sueno, like we're in Columbus, so it's like an hour drive. So it's just once we kind of get there, like we're usually on time for the reservation that we make. Then we're just kind of like running through the menu, like as hard as we kind of can. But definitely want to check it out. And hitting a few cocktails and then driving an hour home probably isn't the safest thing either. And Tender Mercy, like every time we've kind of been to Sueno, even this last time, you just see because the entrance is like right out front. And it's kind of like downstairs, like if you're going like into a subway, like in a big city, you'll just see like people pull up to the valet and then you see one, two, three people go downstairs and like three minutes later, like two more people. And it's just like, there's a constant flow of traffic down there. So I know like it's busy. We're just kind of like, yeah, we have our table at Sueno. We're cool. But yeah, eventually, you know, we're definitely going to pop in like, you know, a half hour early or something like that, probably the next time to, to check it out for sure. Yeah, I I definitely recommend, even if you don't have anything to drink, just popping your head in and seeing it. It's beautiful. It's aesthetically speaking, it's so well designed. Two of the four owners in the Idea Collective are designers and they picked out literally every element of Sueno and Tender Mercy. And Sueno is beautiful too. It's when you work in hospitality, you're not necessarily selling food and wine, you're selling an experience and the ambiance and everything that goes along with it is such an important part of that. And so you know, getting back to a wine label, I think having beautiful wines goes hand in hand with having good uniforms and beautiful ambiance and a good playlist and perfect lighting. All of these things just really go hand in hand to create that experience. Is there a wine region that you gravitate towards? Like I've found that most sommeliers all have like a specific area that they're super excited about. Like either it's they first got started in wine, like this was the region why, or like this is just what they gravitated towards. Like what's yours? Well, when I first got started in wine, I was working at Moretti's, which is an Italian restaurant. And then when I moved to LA and I worked for Kispaka, that was an Italian restaurant and it had a 100% all Italian wine list, which people in California didn't always like. <laughs> so I feel like I, I cut my teeth on Italian wines and that's where I feel pretty comfortable. I, I love Italian wines. I love the Italian spirit. There's just, I don't know, I definitely gravitate towards Italian wines. And I think one of the reasons why when I was considering doing a seller internship, I looked into New York State, I looked into Washington and Oregon. I tried to even see if I could go abroad, but during the pandemic, that just wasn't an option. And I said, you know what? I, I kind of have a chip on my shoulder about Napa. You know, people come in and they're like, the cabs, Napa cabs, Napa cabs. What Napa cabs do you have? Oh, I'll take an Napa cab. And I'm just like, oh, branch behind your comfort zone. Try something weird. Try something different. And so, yeah, I, I'll admit it. I was just like beyond that reason, not because Napa doesn't produce quality wines because they do. I just had a chip on my shoulder about Napa. So I was like, you know, I need to get over this. I'm going to Napa. So now like I have just this like deep love and appreciation for, for Napa. Uh, or just California wines in general. I love Mendocino. I love wines from Mendocino. I love Santa Barbara. I've gained a, an appreciation for Paso Robles as well. Like they are really on the up and up and making some really cool stuff. So, so yeah, I'd say that I still have an affinity for old world wines. I love French wines. I love champagne. I could just like bathe in champagne every day, but I have a newfound appreciation for California wines for sure. Is there a wine region that you're most like excited for in like the next couple of years, whether it's something that you haven't explored enough of you feel like yourself, or maybe you have, you know, it's maybe the lowest one on your list of regions that you understand the most or have the most knowledge of or anything like that? 
Oh, that's a good question. So I have a, a love-hate relationship with France. They're the most important wine-making country in the entire world. It's very complicated. And especially people first starting, I mean, even for me, I, I know I'm not a rookie, but I, I have imposter syndrome all the time. I'm like, why are you even interviewing me on this podcast right now? I don't know what I'm doing. I still feel very intimidated by so much about France because you can study it for a lifetime and still not fully understand it. There's just so much depth and so much history and it's also constantly evolving. So France, love it, highly intimidated by it. Uh, in terms of regions that I am excited about digging into deeper, definitely more in the United States. I think I had the opportunity to go to Texon this past year and some of the uh, lectures that I went to had to do with American grapes and, you know, beyond California, what wine regions in the United States are there to discover. And they talked about wines in Michigan and North Carolina. And when I was on the road, we got to explore some wines from Texas. Fredericksburg is like the cutest place ever. And they're making some incredible wines. I mentioned New Mexico as well. Uh, Gruet is a French family that moved to New Mexico and they're making my favorite American sparkling wines right now. So I think that's a really cool thing to watch out for is, uh, you know, I just mentioned how much I love California, but also not California. What in the United States uh, is also happening. Ohio makes wines. Ohio, pre-prohibition, I think one of the highest producers of wine in the United States. So there's a history of winemaking even here. And today, you know, it's kind of hit or miss. There's a, you know, there's a, quite a bit of rodeo red floating around, but um, there's some good stuff happening too. <laughs> Each chef has a different style. So what's been the most interesting part about doing wine pairings with Chef Jorge's food? Chef Jorge is brilliant. And his palate for food and wine, honestly, is impeccable. And he he makes very complex dishes. That is amazing to eat, but can be a challenge to pair wine with. We do open fire cooking. We have an eight foot hearth where we have a variety of types of wood. There's like hickory and oak and Almost everything has kind of a smoky element to it. There's a, a charred, carbonized, caramelized kind of element to it. It's it's Mexican, so there's oftentimes a, a chili pepper spice element to it. So there's just all of these depths of flavor and all of these layers of complexity, which um, make finding a proper wine pairing a challenge. And also just like when you find it, it I just want to like do somersaults. It makes me so happy when I can find a really cool wine pairing. So. I love smoky wines. And so I've I found a few different wines that have kind of that smoke element, which mirrors the cooking process that Chef Jorge uses. So that's been a lot of fun. Also, thinking back about creating the wine list, I had been hoping and waiting for Spino to open for years. And so I had this wine list document on my computer for several years before Spino opened. And then once we started getting things going and I, I came back to Ohio, I had all of these ideas for wines that I wanted to feature, but I hadn't tried any of chef's dishes yet. And so I was just like, oh, well, here we go. I hope this works. And so I don't think that I actually got to taste through all of chef's dishes until we did a menu rollout with our team on the last day of training before soft opening. And so we all sat down. We had Chef was bringing out all these dishes. He's talking about it. Everybody's taking notes, taking pictures. And I had all of the wines laid out. And I'm taking a bite, tasting with this wine, taking a bite, tasting with this wine. And I was like, okay, some of these are working like I planned, so not so much. So it was, uh, I mean, it was like we were about to open the next day. And so the pressure was certainly on. But, you know, you can always think that something is going to work theoretically. And then you try it and you're like, no, nope, not so much. So, yeah, it's it's been kind of touch and go and, and rolling with the punches. To answer your question, his dishes are very complex. And that is a challenge. <laughs> 
Give me your best Chef Jorge story from your time working with him so far and go in whatever direction you want. Funny story, blew your mind story, whatever. Chef Jorge, as you probably noticed when you interviewed him for your podcast as well, he's a very like direct, precise, almost a little bit monotone. He's just like cool, calm and collected. I've never seen him yell. I've never, I've seen him get frustrated, but he is, he is the anti-chef. In some ways, I feel like I've worked with a lot of hot-headed chefs that that yell and throw things and curse. And Chef Jorge is just like evenly keeled, which means that he could deadpan humor so well. And he is so funny. He's hilarious. And I don't know how many times he's made a joke and it just, just over my head because he's got such a straight poker face about it. (laughs) So I remember this is probably when, when we were first getting started, just getting to know each other, you know, we're there from like 10 AM to 10 PM every day, like doing paperwork, starting accounts, getting, you know, setting our Wi-Fi password setting up emails. Um, I spent so much time going through applications. I think that I went through over 380 applications. I had phone interviews with like 85 people and then in-person interviews with 40 people to, to get started. And so it was literally like every hour was consumed with this. And then once I'm onboarding people and I'm assigning job codes and getting them enrolled in payroll. So I, I had to get Chef Jorge on for all of that as well. So I said, Chef Jorge, uh, we use Toast for a sales system. I said, Chef Jorge, I want to get you in Toast so that you can pull up product mixes and you can you know, look at stats or whatever. Was, what, what are the last four of your social security number? And he goes, I don't have a social security number. And I was like, what? He's like, I'm Mexican. And I was like, oh, okay, right. And he goes, you're racist. <laughs> Of course I have a social security number. And I was just like, but you said it. You were so serious. So yeah, um, he made me feel very racist, maybe on like the third day of meeting. But he's he's so funny and he's so talented and so dedicated. And it's it's such an honor to be able to work with him. When COVID happens and everything, you know, a lot of wineries had backstock or, you know, their allocations weren't going to restaurants or and stuff like that. And a lot of stuff kind of came up available for sale or they were emptying out kind of their wine sellers. Private collectors were kind of putting stuff on the market too as well. Was there any wine that came out during that time that you were surprised you were able to kind of find or see available? Not any particular wine, but I will say... I was constantly shocked at like closeout deals that that distributors were were releasing. We were able to do some some events and you know, we did like a Mother's Day event and I was able to get some sparkling to go along with that that was like dirt cheap. There wasn't like some epic bottle that I was able to procure for for a song and a dance or anything. Distributors were getting scrappy, that's for sure. I didn't buy from any private collections at that point in time. Swania wasn't open and Tender Mercy was still very cocktail oriented. And so I have very approachable price points for all of the wines that are on the list. So that wasn't necessarily something that I was looking for. However, one cool thing that we did, like I said, we were just trying to do anything to to make money to get by so that we could keep our doors open. And I was able to do private wine tasting. So even if we weren't able to be open to the public, we could do private events with parties 10 or less, I think was the regulation at the time. And so Brandon was doing private cocktail classes and I was doing private wine tasting. It was really cool to be able to to kind of create that for people. They'd say, hey, I want to do a private wine tasting. It's my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. I'm like, okay, cool. What kind of wines do you like? I kind of do a survey. I was able to find for somebody's anniversary. I believe they got married in like 1984 or something. And so I, I was able to buy 
1984 bottle of, of dessert wine and they, you know, I surprised them with it and they cried and that was really fun. And that was at a, a very affordable price. I don't remember exactly how much it was, but being able to procure some higher end stuff for those private wine tastings was a lot of fun. There's only like 28 women master psalms in the world. The court controversy with a bunch of different stuff. We all kind of know, or if you don't know, you, it's pretty easy to find um, all the stuff that happened. Some people got kicked out of the court, all that stuff. Because you're a woman sommelier, are you done with the court? Would you pursue an advanced or a master? Is that something that you want to do? Or are you kind of in like wait and see mode since you know they put three women master psalms on kind of like their 11 person board and stuff like that, you know, and said, we're going to change all this stuff. So where are you kind of at with the court? Watching the drama unfold is interesting, <laughs> you know, and I don't, I don't agree with everything that the court has done. However, at the end of the day, the, the court, their goals, what they're trying to accomplish, I stand by. They, politically speaking, you know, they're not a political organization. They're trying to promote wine education. And that's something that I, that I stand by. The problem doesn't come from the infrastructure of the court. It comes from the people that are leading the charge. And I think that they are showing an attempt to make those changes and they're being, they're listening and they're responding. Sometimes changes don't always happen fast and sometimes they're really tough. And there's probably some people that are upset at some of the changes, but I, I think that they are at least proving that they're, they're listening and they're trying. You know, you mentioned all of the women that are now in leadership positions, they have the diversity team. They are trying to promote that. And whether it's just for good PR or true intentions, the change is still happening. I know WSET hasn't had quite the same level of controversy. And so a lot of people are, are kind of maybe making the shift towards WSET. But yeah, at the end of the day, I still think that what the court is trying to accomplish is, is a worthwhile cause. I have had great experiences. And, and also, you're never going to make a change as impactful from the outside as you would from the inside. So I'd rather remain in the court as a woman and, and try to be a part of things and, and continue to make that change. And if, if for no other reason, just saying that I'm a member of the court and conducting myself in a way that I'm proud of <laughs> can be you know, a, a good representation of what the, the court can produce and what the court can do. You also passed, I believe, the Cicerone too, right? You did the beer? Well, I'm not like the master of Cicerone. I did the, the very easiest level, the beer server or something like that. <laughs> What was that like experience? Was it very similar to the wine ones that you've done or was it just completely like off the walls? Uh, it's very similar to CMS level one. I did it to help through my uh, process of certification through the court because uh, the court isn't just asking questions about wine. It's beer, cocktails, liquor. We used to have an emphasis on cigars and coffee as well and a little bit less so now, but sake, you know, it's it's that whole that whole realm. So I had a friend that had done it and she told me a little bit about it. And I was like, okay, I can do this. This is great. This I feel like a novice when it comes to beer. So it was a lot of flashcards. They tell you what you need to know. They've got wonderful um, videos and PowerPoint slides and you can buy nice laminated flashcards and, and the whole nine yards. So they really provide you with a lot of information and a lot of like detailed frameworks with it, um, which you can operate in, which is very helpful. But I, I highly recommend it. Anybody that's pursuing anything and hospitality, it was a great experience and it was not super expensive either, <laughs> which could be a challenge in this industry sometimes. Where you're at with your exams and everything, I mean, you said you're going to continue on with WSET and you think you'll do the advanced with the court too, but 
are you going to continue with like the Cicerone or are you going to do anything with the Society of Wine or kind of what do you think like where you're headed with all that stuff? Because I mean, obviously you're working two full-time jobs, essentially. You're managing two different places, you know, even though one's upstairs and one's below and everything, but you still have to carve out time to study and all that stuff, which can be pretty daunting. So where do you think you're headed kind of with some of that stuff? I am not in a place to be studying right now. You are correct. I'm, I'm the general manager of Swainio and I do the wine list for Swainio and I do the wine list for TM. And we also are in talks of opening a third location, which would hope I'm, I'm pushing for a wine focus on that place too. So I think in terms of studying, I, I don't have a huge interest in pursuing much more Cicerone certification. I definitely would keep it more, more wine focused, preferably through the court. But also, like I mentioned, maybe hopping back and forth between WSET and court just to um, take those baby steps. So, yeah, I just need more time. <laughs> I need more time in my life. Since passing the certified, it was just kind of like a breath of relief. And I felt like it was, I was like, oh, that was manageable. I could do that. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I could do the advanced. Like I never really thought that I would be capable of doing the advanced. And now I'm like, hmm. You know, maybe I should, maybe this should be on my radar. Maybe I haven't been giving myself enough credit. And if I allow myself enough time, like that's something that I think I could do. It's just making it a priority and having the ability to give it the the effort that it requires. When you do have time to like go out to dinner, go eat at a restaurant, do you compulsively check the wine list as soon as you sit down or like, are you just able to kind of turn it off and enjoy? I not only check the wine list, but I take pictures of it too, so that I can look at it later in detail and be like, oh man, I've always wanted that wine. I didn't, I don't know where they source that. Who distributes that? Um, you know, and, and comparing, comparing prices, making sure that I have formulas that I use for, for pricing things, but I also want to stay competitive compared to the region. And yeah, so I do compulsively check and I went out to dinner, Austin, I went to Suerte, which was an amazing experience. <laughs> the person I was with was just talking, 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 talking. And I'm just like not paying attention. I'm looking at the decor. I'm looking at the menu. I'm trying to ask the server questions. And he was finally like, oh, you're working right now, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it is kind of hard to turn that off. And even the, the Idea Collective, I went to um, a portfolio show and brought them along with me. And in Columbus, it was a Vanguard portfolio show. And we went, I think we went to the Pearl or something like that. And we all walked in and sat down at the table and there's like five of us. And it's just like silence for the first 15 minutes. And and David and Ginger, the two designers, they, they're looking up at like the HVAC system. And David goes, hey, Ginger, did you see? And she's like, oh, yeah, I saw. And he was like, what do you think about that? And she's like, oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> so like even from a design element, you know, they're just constantly absorbing and taking notes and, and deriving influence and ideas from those experiences. One of your quote unquote Valentines was Bollinger. Explain to me what I'm missing because I've tried it a couple of times. Again, it it hasn't been the high-end stuff. It's kind of been their lower tier stuff, but I just don't really like it. So what am I missing? Because that seems to be like a favorite of some sommeliers and I'm not sure what I'm missing on that. So it's not my personal favorite either. And I'm going to be honest, that photo was taken um, kind of a while ago. I just had never posted it. And we had sourced it for Tender Mercy's Halloween event. It was a 007 James Bond theme. And so we wanted to make it black tie fancy. Um, we had VIP tickets where uh, if you booked a party of two, you got a 750 of Coutinger champagne. And if you were a party of four, you got a magnum of Bollinger. Besides Dom Perignon, those are the two champagnes that James Bond talked about and were his favorites. It's not one of my favorites, but anything in a magnum is even more fun. So it just made a, it made a great picture. 
it's not bad. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still like a well-made champagne. Because I always see, and I'm like, I don't, what am I missing? Like, I've tried it a couple times. It doesn't pull me in for whatever reason. Like, and there's only like a couple that in the champagne field that are like that. And that's one of them for whatever reason. How has uh, the food and wine, food and restaurant industry in Dayton changed since you've been involved? What do you think still needs to kind of change for Dayton as a food scene? Where do you see it headed? Dayton is a very exciting market to be in right now, in my opinion. Dayton has had a tumultuous history. It had heydays and years past where it was a big, thriving, vibrant city. NCR, National Cash Register, was headquartered here. Um, LexisNexis is here. It was, you know, founded and headquartered here. So, you know, when I hear my parents talk about like what it was like living in Dayton in the 80s, it was like, it was a hop in place. And then, you know, it just kind of started to recede. Some of those large businesses pulled out and, and relocated to other cities. And so there's definitely blight here and there's skyscrapers downtown that are not occupied. And to me, I think it feels, Dayton to me feels like Columbus when I was in college. Feels like Columbus like 20 years ago. Columbus in 2005 when I started college is not Columbus of 2022, that's for sure. It's developed a lot. And, um, you know, I, I go to parts of, of Columbus, like short north, and there were dive bars and there were some abandoned buildings and things like that. And, and a lot of that's since been developed. So anyways, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity here. It's so much better than when I was in high school. So when I left for high school, when I graduated high school and left for college, I didn't really come back to Dayton until recently, like for long-term living. And so it's, it has changed a lot. I think um, it hasn't lost its character, yet it's still developing a lot of things that um, are going to keep people here. So when the Idea Collective was doing market research to determine whether Dayton was a viable market, they spent a lot of time working with the Downtown Dayton Partnership and talking to people um, within the city to, to get data. And I, one of the shocking pieces of information for me was that there's so much development for living spaces in the downtown vicinity, yet it's still maintained a 98% occupancy rate, despite all of this constant development, meaning people are moving here. There's a, a tech town, there's the Air Force Base, there's um, all of these uh, defense things that are coming about in association with the Air Force Base. And so there's long been brain drain from the city, but I feel like we're also attracting a lot of people. I'm meeting more and more people that are moving here from Portugal, from New York, from wherever for opportunities here. And so we need a vibrant entertainment scene to be able to support that downtown living and to continue to not just attract, but keep people in the downtown setting. And it is happening. There are new places opening all the time. I feel like I used to know this city inside and out. And I, I walk down the street and I'm like, when did that record store open? I didn't even know that was there. I think a key component, one of the big gripes that I've heard from people about downtown Dayton is it's only bars and restaurants opening, but there's more and more things happening. There's arcades and there's, you know, like a axe throwing place that's opening. There's, there's other things that are happening as well. And the restaurants that are opening are not chain restaurants. They're not from huge investment companies. They're, they're like regular people opening restaurants. And I think that's really exciting. What's next for you professionally? I mean, you talked about the exam stuff, you know, potential for another restaurant or wine bar to open with you guys there too, but anything else on the horizon for you? I would love to own my own wine shop. Having gotten a little bit of experience in uh, San Francisco working in retail, I really enjoyed that. I also, I love working in hospitality. I love the, the energy and the fast paced qualities. I'm just 
I feel old and working until 1am is not, <laughs> not something I think is sustainable for me forever. So yeah, the idea of starting a wine shop and being able to work normal hours, like normal people hours, and maybe even have a social life is really appealing to me. I'm, I'm very lucky too. I think that I've already lived a lot of life when I think about how much I've been able to travel and being able to do a seller internship and all of that. I've, I've really checked a lot of things off, off of the list thus far. However, I would like to do another internship in France. I'd love to go and do some winemaking in Beaujolais. I think that would be pretty epic. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty open. I feel like I have been lucky where a lot of opportunities have come to me rather than me having to seek them out. But yeah, I don't know. I think I'm, I'm kind of in a, a good place where I'm content. Sweeney hasn't even been open for a year yet. I want to make sure that there's systems in place and people empowered and that is a well-oiled machine before moving on to anything else. And I feel like we're getting really close to that. So this next question comes from Silas Caton, who's the managing partner at the Locks Bagel Shop here in Columbus. He was the previous guest on the podcast. So he left behind a question for you. What's your go-to cocktail? So I guess it depends on the setting. If it's like a crowded bar and the bartender comes over to me and I'm not prepared and I don't want to be like that jerk that's like, oh, I don't know. That's good. Can I see your list? If it's just like, boom, boom, order something right now, I'll order a Negroni. If I have more time to, I would love to order something off of whatever place establishment I'm at, something off of their craft cocktail list. I always love exploring what other people have to create as well. Oh, I also love a good pearl diver. Pearl Diver is really good. I love Tiki. And when we were on the road, we spent a lot of time exploring Tiki tiki bars. And I think maybe the light, most life-changing cocktail I've ever had was uh, in New Orleans. Uh, it was a Pearl Diver. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything. Well, you interview chefs and sommeliers. So I guess I should ask a question that could kind of apply to, to anybody rather than wine specific. Whatever you feel like asking, like, I mean, it's all hospitality related people. Yeah. If you want to ask a wine question, like, yeah, fire away. This is a question I like to ask potential employees in interviews because I love to hear people describe in detail, like an experience. So I always ask like, what's your most memorable food experience? Preferably if it's like a food wine pairing and that doesn't have to be in a restaurant. It can be like, maybe your grandma made you something and it was just, it meant something. So yeah. What's your most memorable food and wine experience? This question comes from one of our listeners. What was the last product that you found or came across that changed the way you operate as a either a sommelier, a wine director, a GM? So there's a lot of products that are emerging in the industry right now. So I'll speak as a GM. There's a lot of products and um, technology and apps that are coming about that make my life so much easier. And something that I really love about working with the Idea Collective is they're very technology-based. Um, we don't keep paper files for things. We try not to have, we try to have everything in living documents so that it can be the most up-to-date as possible. We work with Toast as a POS system, which I will never go back to any other POS system. It's amazing. It's all cloud-based. I can be working from home and need to change the menu and boop, 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 immediately everything's updated on the terminals and the restaurant. That's amazing. We work with Seven Rooms, which for a reservation system, which once again, after having worked with Open Table for so long, Seven Rooms is like cutting edge of technology. I still am learning more functionality every single day about it. And having both Tender Mercy and Sueno, it's using Seven Rooms and having them connected but separate. We have a database for all of our clients. We can leave, take in-depth notes about people. We have, it syncs with Toast. So as we see people on Seven Rooms, 
toast knows that that person is sitting at that table and they give us live updates on what they're ordering and what they're spending. And so all of that information of their previous ordering history is now uh, living on our seven room system. So we can see, oh, every single time they come, they buy this bottle of wine and I don't have to manually enter that. It's all connected with toast. We're also running a pilot with a new app called Yelly and they uh, it's a former hospitality employee that's creating app-based training for hospitality. So you can essentially upload menu items, ingredients, pictures. It auto-generates tests. You can have opening and closing checklists where you know you don't have to have this printed sheet where people are checking things off. It's a free subscription. All of your employees can download the app and all the information they need, wine list, cocktail list, food, like I said, side worksheets, handbooks, all of that stuff is, is loaded on there. So you don't have this just like archaic paper version <laughs> floating in the office somewhere. So those are three of the systems that we use that I think make my job so much easier. All right. So this is the last set of questions we asked to kind of everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your sommelier career thus far? Like I mentioned previously, I think I feel very lucky to have had uh, in Los Angeles a few people be willing to dedicate their valuable time to a complete rookie that knew nothing. <laughs> so all of them just happen to be women. Uh, Katie Vonderheide was the song that was working at Spaca when I started. And she's just like the most cool, calm, collected, chill person ever. And she taught me so much. And I just look up to her and admire her so much as a as a psalm, as an artist, and as a person. And she is the one that initially prompted me. And then Grace Gabori was a psalm that was working that also, she was the one that came to my house where I bombed my first blind tasting. And I was like, um, I can't do this. I'm not that out for this. But she really encouraged me. And like, she helped me become an actual psalm, um, encouraged me to take the test and helped me get those actual, those shifts. I had wonderful managers. Uh, Kim Track was another manager that really encouraged me. And then Taylor Grant was a psalm at Osteria, another female psalm. One of many psalms and one of the few female psalms at the Osteria And I really looked up to her and the few conversations that I was able to have with her about wine every time I was just like, oh my God, she's so brilliant. So yeah, there was, there was a lot of people in the Mozaplex that really bolstered me and, and pushed me forward and gave me confidence. And coming back to Ohio and then taking the certified in Ohio was a complete change of pace because you're not just surrounded by wine people and wine and a wine scene. It's a beer scene. You know, there's all this German Hungarian influence in the area and people drink beer. There's breweries everywhere, but finding wine is just certainly not as easy. And so when I came back to Ohio, I met Chris Dillman um, and he was so kind and gracious and took me to the refectory for two days to do a kind of crash course. Before I took the certified, I hadn't worked in restaurants for a few years. And so I was like, oh my God, I'm shaky on just wine service. And I used to open hundred bottles a day. So he took me to the refectory, did so many blind tastings, put me on the floor, really helped me, um, you know, shake off the dust and, and get my courage back up. And then uh, Keegan Kokoran in Cincinnati, he's, he also did similar things, went over champagne service before the exam, gave a lot of um, direction as to like what specific things to study. He made up all of these uh, sample tests that he made on his own time and would take people sitting for the certified exam and give them the test, grade them, give them feedback. And he's not something else that I do love about the, the court. It's very mentorship based. They really encourage people. They don't give you such a firm structure because they want you to get out there and network and learn firsthand from other people. And so once you kind of rise through the ranks, there's this expectation that you lift up other people that are on that journey just as others lifted you up. 
Um, and here in Ohio, Chris and Keegan were definitely that for me. What is your desert island wine? I'm on an island. It's a desert. It's hot. I want something refreshing, either sparkling or white. It's an island. I actually really love Chardonnay and I love Scar of the Sea Chardonnay. It's got this really lovely salinity to it. Um, it reminds me of sitting on a beach, actually. And so I could pound that all day. And sitting on a desert island, that feels like a, a proper pair. What's a restaurant you recommend that isn't your own? You know, scenario you usually give is a person gets stuck at the airport, stuck overnight. You guys aren't open. They reach out to you. Hey, where should I go eat? You point them in this direction. So there's a new place that just opened. There are two friends of mine. It's a European style like wine bar. It's called Silver Slipper. They have had the toughest journey getting their business open and they are beasts. <laughs> I think it took them almost two years to get their liquor license and they had the spot. They had renovated it. They were just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, waiting for all of the red tape to go through. Uh, Simon and Lorelai have wonderful palettes. The wine that they pick out and put on their list is impeccable. Um, they do oysters, all different types of oysters and really nice like light fare. They're open late too. They're open until 1am and they serve food until 1am. So for anybody working in hospitality, that's also an extra perk. But you you walk inside and you feel like you're in New York City or Paris. Their aesthetic is just immaculate. So I highly, highly recommend Silver Slipper or the Pine Club because it's a legendary place. It's been open for the 40s, since the 40s, probably hasn't been renovated since then, probably still has the original team still working there. Um, so completely 180 opposite of the Silver Slipper, but it's kind of a Dayton legend. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. Is there any place that you haven't been to that you want to travel to? Any place you haven't eaten at that you want to eat at? It's a travesty that I love Italian wine so much and I've never been to Italy. I also recently started skiing. And so I thought it would be incredible to do kind of like a wine ski tour of France and do Alsace and Jura, eat sausages, drink wine and ski. <laughs> so actually, that's what I would choose. Bucket list restaurants. You might as well just go big and do Osteria Francescana. When I worked at Kispaka, we actually hosted Makmo for a pop-up event. And he was there in the flesh cooking and signed his cookbook for me. And uh, he was doesn't speak much English, but it was just really inspiring to be around him and his entire team and to have them in, you know, in the setting that I worked. But I would love to experience his restaurant. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? That's such a loaded question. I think so. One of my very best friends is a midwife. And whenever we get together, we always compare battle stories. And I think I can spar with the best of them with my hospitality stories, even though she's got crazy baby stories. But I mean, working in LA, there's all kinds of celebrities. It was, there was one time I think in it, I walked outside and they had, so the multiplex kind of revolves around this like central parking lot area. And whenever they have really big name celebrities come through, they can have them park and then they have a gate that they can they can close off. And so one night it was just like a star studded night. And I walked outside and they closed the gates because there was Johnny Depp, Paul McCartney, and Adam Levine. And they were all just like standing out there in the back. And I opened the door and I'm like, have a pizza in my hand and like ready to take a break. And I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, that's Paul McCartney. That was great. I mean, if you work in hospitality, you're constantly cleaning up piss and poop. Like it's, it's insane how many people cannot piss inside of a toilet. Like how... Why? Why? Why is this a thing? So, you know, there's all kinds of gross, gross stories like that. Uh, I also worked in Vegas. So yeah, um, lots of stories about escorts. And it was the end of residency for this very big musician. 
at the casino that I was working at. It was a high-end steak restaurant that I was working in with a really incredible wine list. And so it was the end of the night, the crew got off and they came in for a late dinner. And one of the sound technicians was there with a very obvious escort with faking a French accent that told me that she was a ballerina and came here to dance. They're like the last ones in the restaurant. There's like maybe one or two other tables walking through the dining room. And I turn around and her tits are just out. Like her shirt is off. Her tits are out. And the other table that's a few tables next to them, like obviously shocked. And I was like, yeah, it sounds about right. And I was like, I'm not paid enough to have to handle this situation. So (laughs) I was like, these people are uncomfortable. I need to do something. I turn around and she had put them away, which was great. But it's like, Vegas is a crazy place. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, whether it's candy, someplace in the grocery store you try to avoid, fast food. Is there anything that you know is super terrible for you, but you just can't help yourself? So many things. McDonald's, French fries. If they're good enough for Julia Child, then they're good enough for me. And Julia Child said that there's no food better than McDonald's French fries. I also really love instant ramen. And I every time I go to a grocery store, I always try to hit up their instant ramen aisle because there's so many different types. I recently got some, like, I don't even know, like Hebrew instant noodles. So I'm, I typically stick towards like Japanese, Korean style ramen. And now I'm like, oh, why expanding my horizons? But Shen Black is the best ramen that's ever made. I buy it by the pack. Like I buy it like four at a time. It's the most delicious instant ramen. Great late night indulgence food. Which of the following wine documentaries would you recommend? Some, some two, some three, sour grapes, decanted or blood into wine? I always recommend some. I think it's a really, a really great glimpse into what the world of wine is like, obviously on a very high level. And it's changed the perception of a lot of people of what Assam is. And sometimes I tell people, oh, I'm Assam. And they think of that documentary and they think of these master Assams. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not that good or crazy. (laughs) But it is very interesting. And I've watched it several times. I also love sour grapes just from an entertainment level. It doesn't get better than that. And you don't have to have any interest in the wine world whatsoever to enjoy how great of a documentary that is. Which of the following wine movies would you recommend? Bottle Shock, A Good Year, Uncorked, or Sideways? Bottle Shock is a cool story, but as a movie, it's kind of terrible. Like <laughs> the production value and the acting and everything. It's just like, I, I'm going to be honest. I started watching this and I was like, all right, I think I'm going to watch something else. Sideways, I think is actually a good movie. It's, it's beautiful. The, you know, it's well-made. The acting is good. It's an interesting story. I know a lot of people in the wine industry get up in arms about the whole Pinot Noir Merlot debate, but just from like an entertainment value As a theater critic, I'd say it's the best movie of the four. (laughs) All right, wine recommendations. So four categories here. Wine recommendation for $20 or under a bottle, $50 or under, $100 or under, or over $100. $20 or under, I typically would go with a rosé just because you can get a lot of bang for your buck um, in that category. So you can find wonderful rosés for under $20. I... Also, Sparklers, um, which I absolutely love. Uh, Alta Alea is a great producer out of Spain. They are they're technically a natural wine. It's organic, no additions, but it's like clean, precise. If I didn't tell you it was natural wine, you wouldn't know it's a natural wine. And we were pouring it as a glass pour here for a little while. And it was a vintage, it was a 2016 vintage cava that I was getting for like nothing. So a lot of quality, a lot of value in that wine. Anything from Alta Alea is, is beautiful, but they're... Fruit Cava is delicious. $50 and under. 
this is one that's kind of new to Ohio. Voyager Beverage is a new distribution company and he is incredible bringing in really, really great stuff. And I'm going to mispronounce the name of this producer, Domain Geschicht, I think it's from Alsace. Uh, it's a single single vineyard bottling from the uh, Kafferkopf Grand Cru Vineyards. It is, once again, a natural wine. They're biodynamic, um, Demeter certified biodynamic. The winery's been around for 70 years. So this one's a field blend. It's like a very traditional Alsatian field blend of Pinot Gris, Riesling, and Gewürztraminer. And this is one of the only vineyard sites that can be a blend and also a Grand Cru. It's just a beautiful, delicious wine. I think I sold more of it to employees over the holidays. I were taking it to parties than I have to actual um, to guests, but it's, I want to say it's not even under $50. I want to say it's like $30 or something like that. And it's, it's a very beautiful wine that punches way above its class. $100 and under. One of my favorite producers is Domaine Trevelon and they are in Provence, France. They don't have an AOC because they've just kind of grown the same grapes in the, the region for a while and they really like what they're doing. So um, rather than conforming to the specifics of what you know what they can grow and bottle, they just do their own thing. Yet it's still a very well-made and highly respected wine. And and they obviously, you know, they're charging about a hundred bucks a bottle. So they do a blend of Cab and Syrah. I got to try my first bottle about a year and a half ago, and it was the 2016 vintage. And typically, it's 50/50 in terms of the blend. And then that year, it was more Cab because wild boars roamed their vineyards and ate more of the Syrah grapes. And so they didn't have as much Syrah to put into the bottling. So it was a little more cab heavy, um, but it's so beautiful. It's it's definitely on the bigger side. I typically like lighter reds, but this is a big full body wine, but it's well-made. It's beautiful. Once again, it's a natural wine um, that doesn't drink like a natural wine, in my opinion. And the label art is beautiful. They had um, this famous artist whose name I cannot recall do all of the label art. And they, before he passed away, they had all of these different prints that he had made. And so each vintage that they bottle, they choose a piece of art that kind of reflects the wine itself. So yeah, it's really beautiful inside and out. And then over a hundred. This is going to sound braggadocious and maybe it is, but when I was working in LA, it was kind of crazy because we'd have insane people in the wine industry come in and um, be very generous with their wine. And so uh, Christian Navarro from Wally's Wines would come in all the time. We'd have all of these psalms from all over come in and, and bring wine. And Kispaka is very small. I think the capacity is like 35 or 40 people in the entire dining room. Um, so it gets really intimate. And somebody, a group of psalms came in, or people working in the wine industry came in. This guy dropped off a bottle of wine earlier in the day. It was covered in foil and put in a bag. And he had decanted it that morning and then poured it back into the bottle. He dropped it off early. Um, and he was going to blind taste his friends on it. And so I ended up taking care of them. They blinded it. He gave me a glass and he goes, that's 97 Screaming Eagle. And that's like a legendary vintage. I would never be able to afford that wine. I will never taste that wine ever again in my life. And it's typically not my style, but it was absolutely amazing. So yeah, if you just have like stupid money and you're like, oh, I have more money than I know what to do with, then maybe get a bottle of 97 Screaming Eagle <laughs> or you could buy a house. I don't know, either, wherever your priorities lie. Out, and anything from Italy too, like Barolo and Amarone. I love Barolo and Amarone. I was, I love 2012 Quintarelli Amarone. It was the last uh, vintage that Quintarelli actually made. And that was kind of an aha wine for me when I tried that. I was just like, oh my God, oh, I taste this and I have another sip and I taste all of these other things and it evolves in the glass. And it was just unlike any wine I had ever had before. And so that was, that was definitely a game changing wine for me. The 2012 Quintarelli Amarone. Favorite Instagram account you follow? 
Ooh. Oh man, I might have to look it up. I, I follow a lot of like stupid accounts, cute animal accounts. So whenever I'm just like stressed out, I'm like, can I see more dogs playing? Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that. I have some friends that um, started a wine bar in California called Good Clean Fun. I think their Instagram is really, really wonderful. Just from an, an aesthetic standpoint, Cisa Trees in Mexico City, their Instagram is so good. Every picture that they post uh, is amazing. I, I got to eat there when I went to Mexico City. Um, and it's a really cute little cafe wine bar. But yeah, just well curated. It's a beautiful Instagram account. It makes me feel good when I look at it. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you were, is there a moment episode scene that stands out? If you weren't, is there another culinary personality, whether it was a Emeril Lagasse or Guy Fieri or, or somebody that was on TV that you kind of gravitated towards kind of when you were coming up through your career? Uh, definitely Anthony Bourdain. Love Anthony Bourdain. Not as much as Sabrina Cox, who is uh, <laughs> the manager at Center Mercy. She's legit in love. Um, I love him. He's so inspiring. And I think when Rotten Journal was getting started, he was a huge inspiration of what travel and food and wine can can mean and how it can represent a people. And it's not just about, you know, having fun. It's it's a deep dive into a culture and understanding of people. And, you know, that's what really brings us all together. So I have mad respect for Anthony Bourdain and what he did through his TV series. I think the one that stuck with me the most was when he went to Laos. I remember... I haven't watched it in a while, but I remember just being like stunned by the end because he talked in detail about, you know, the the history of the political climate and there's still so many undetonated bombs there. And it's just like a way of life where people know they have to navigate these things. And it's it's years and years and years after any kind of conflict. And and yeah, once again to reiterate, that's what I loved about him. It wasn't just about food. It was about it was about people. And I feel like I got to learn I don't know. I just learned a lot through watching his show. So that was a good one. Um, he obviously loved Vietnam and did a lot of episodes on Vietnam. And you can really see the passion that he has for that country through all of his episodes. So anything from Vietnam as well. Where can people find you? Social media, uh, reservations, website, plug everything. Sure. Sueno, uh, our website is sueno.dyt.com. You can make reservations on our website. And then our Instagram is sueno.dyt tendermercy.com and uh, our Instagram handle is tendermercydyt. For me personally, I, I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, I am on Instagram and my Instagram handle is not very podcast friendly. It's Lauren. It's Lauren, but there's like 12 A's, I think, in the middle of it. So it's pretty easy to find if you need to. But but yeah, this was awesome. I really appreciate you taking some time to come on the podcast. And Sweeney is an awesome place. We love it. Uh, we recommend it to anybody who's in search of, of good food and, and good Mexican food. It's only an hour drive from Columbus. And, you know, we always come in every couple months, you know, especially when there's a new menu change or new dishes that pop up on the menu too. And I can't recommend it enough. And I can't wait to see kind of what else has in store for you in terms of the, the wine industry. Thank you so much for your time. It's really been an honor and a pleasure. A big thanks again to general manager, wine director, and sommelier Lauren Gay for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her morning off to come on and talk wine and her career and where she's been and where she's headed. So uh, again, if you haven't been to Sueño, I highly recommend you check it out. The food's amazing. Uh, we, like I said, we've had Chef Jorge Guzman on the podcast previously. So make sure to listen to that episode too as well. 
they change the menu. You know, they usually put new dishes on the menu kind of every month, every other month. You know, it's basically once Chef Jorge comes back into town and he comes, you know, pretty regularly um, to date. And they usually add a, a couple things and they change it with the seasons too as well. So it's just an awesome space. Very well designed, um, super inviting, food's amazing. So really easy to get to, easy to park at. You can follow them on Instagram at DYT and at TenderMercyDYT. Make sure to follow Lauren too as well. It's at Lauren. Um, it's got like eight or 10 or 12 A's in the middle of it. So it's super easy to find. You can follow her on Instagram too as well. Make sure to follow us at SpoonMob. Make sure to check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find all that stuff through the website too, along with the contact portal. You can email us, spoonmobayahoo.com. Check out previous episodes of the podcast too as well. There'll be more stuff on the way, come out every Thursday. So appreciate everybody listening. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, appreciate you staying here and continuing to listen. Really appreciate all the support and the feedback and everything that we get from all the listeners and subscribers and everything. So that's it for this week, though, and we will talk to you guys next week.